قرباء ولغير الله لا نحن الجباء غرباء بسم الله الحمد لله we begin the name of Allah, all praise and glory be to Allah, and may His finest peace and blessings be upon His Messenger Muhammad and His family and His companions, and all those who adhere to His guidance while asking Allah Azza wa Jal to make us among the best of those who adhere to His guidance. May Allah Azza wa Jal grant us a new life upon His guidance and His Sunnah, and a death while closely adhering to His guidance and His Sunnah, and a reunion around Him, and a drink from His blessed hand on the Day of Judgment, the Day of Thirst. Allahumma Amin and an opportunity to see the face of his Lord and ours, Allahumma Ameen. May Allah make this a, an evening that purifies our hearts and enlightens our minds, and one that we do not stand from except with our sins forgiven, and our paths towards his pleasure clarified and secured and bettered, Allahumma Ameen. So it's very intimidating, to be honest, to speak about Umar, like, what do you say and what don't you say? Uh, it's it's enough that the Prophet وسلم, said, had there been a Prophet after me, it would be Umar, right? It's enough that the Prophet وسلم, was shown of all the palaces and mansions to be shown in Jannah. He was shown Umar's. He said, I entered Jannah and I was taken through it and I saw this marvelous place with a beautiful woman outside washing herself. And I said, whose estate is this? They said, a man from the Arab. He said, Ana Arabi. Liman had al I am an Arab. Hopeful. Who, whose whose uh, palace is this? They said, for a man from Quraysh, from the tribe of Quraysh. He said, Ana Qurashi. I'm, I'm a Qurashite. Like, is it me? Whose palace does this belong to? And so the angel said to him, min ummati Muhammad. They said, a man from the nation of Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He said, Ana Muhammad. I'm Muhammad himself. <laughs> uh, who does this palace belong to? They said, Li Umar ibn Khattab. To Umar ibn Khattab, radiallahu anhu. May Allah be pleased with him. There's actually some of the detail on this incident. It's Sahih al-Bukhari. When the Prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam, even said, uh, and I wanted to enter, but I remembered your jealousy, O Umar, your jealous man. Uh, and so Umar began to cry, and he said, I would be jealous from someone like you. Ya Rasulullah, But perhaps a good place to start uh, is the fact that Umar was second to none after Abu Bakr, radiallahu anhu, and he was second to none, even beyond Abu Bakr, in terms of being the most impactful, globally impactful, historically impactful companion of the Prophet You know, Muslims love to talk about Michael Hart's 100 greatest, right? The most influential people uh, on the face of the earth. He has Muhammad uh, as number one, and no one's even close. He says that in the intro. And then you have like Isaac Newton, you have uh, Jesus the son of Mary, and so on and so forth. The 52nd is Umar ibn Khattab, radiallahu anhu. It's not a small feat. But what's really interesting, without getting too far into that, 
is that the Prophet ﷺ foretold this taking place. And so maybe the first lesson from the life of Umar that you want to take, the most important lesson, is that Umar himself and his life story is a proof for the truth of Islam, is a proof of the prophethood of Muhammad The hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar, his son, in Sahih al-Bukhari, it's been confirmed uh, and authentically transmitted that the Prophet said that I was shown uh, in a dream of mine that I was pulling a bucket from a well. I was pulling water for people, right? And I pulled and I pulled and then the, the bucket was taken by who? By Abu Bakr Siddiq, radiallahu And he pulled one bucket full or two, but with weakness. He struggled. Weak, with weakness, he pulled one or two. Wallahu yaghfiru lahu and Allah will forgive him. This is an expression in the Arabic language meaning God will not hold this against him. It doesn't actually mean he did anything wrong, Abu Bakr, radiallahu He said... And then Umar takes the bucket in the dream, فَاسْتَحَالَتْ غَرْبًا And the bucket becomes like a, a huge container. It grows. فَمَا رَأَيْتُ عَبْقَرِيًّا يَثْرِ فَرِيَّهُ حَتَّى رُوِيَ النَّاسِ And he kept pulling and pulling and pulling water for people from the well. I've never seen someone so competent like Umar. Someone that was able to pull off anything that Umar could pull off. Until every last person was able to drink and they all settled down. They settled. And so, number one, this foretold that life would be given to this world, not just by the Prophet that water is the source of life, right? But Abu Bakr would do so, and that Umar would also do so after him. That's of the prophecies he foretold, alayhi salatu wasalam. And in this hadith also is an indication that Abu Bakr radiallahu anh would not do as much as Umar. And this was true because Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anh lived for a short time after the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and he was busy trying to restabilize the ummah from the mayhem that temporarily took place after his death, sallallahu alayhi wa And then Umar took the reins of this ummah and was leading it for five times as long or six times as long, the period that Abu Bakr al-Siddiq led and truly stabilized this ummah. The people settled around the well, all right? Truly stabilized this ummah. Overnight, like he put Islam on the map, on the world stage. You know, in the Columbia University History of the World Encyclopedia of World History, they say that Umar ibn al-Khattab, this senior officer of Muhammad, والسلام, established a superior bureaucracy to the Roman Empire, even though he was from, you know, a land of, of deserts and hills and shepherds and, and drunkards and illiterate people. How did he do that? The way that he sort of like centralized the government and kept sort of the peripheries growing without trying to over control them and that causes you to break you know your system your governmental system he did all of this overnight the roman empire has been pulling this off for hundreds of years and umar outdid them 
without any precedent, without any help. It's from the tawfiq of Allah Azza wa for this man. Is that clear? But the fact is that the Prophet foretold it, that in and of itself is a proof of Islam that he would do all of this. Radiallahu ta'ala anhu wa The second lesson, you know, that really is worth stopping at regarding the life of Umar ibn Khattab, radiallahu an, is that Umar was a phenomenal testament to the redemptive power of Islam. That Islam can redeem you no matter what you've done in your past. Right? Like, Umar, as some historians have said, was not supposed to have a grave. Like, Umar before Islam was what? Umar was an alcoholic who was always bullying people. Long story short. Right? So he was supposed to die probably in his early 20s, as some historians say, very early by either drinking himself to death or by picking a fight with the wrong tribe, wrong family, and his family comes after, his family comes after him, you know, to, to avenge their clansmen. He was supposed to die on the side of a hill somewhere. He wouldn't have even had a grave, right? And yet Umar became all that he became. Umar radiallahu anhu was brutal and ruthless and heartless and, you know, would beat those he could get his hands on and found some leverage against for being Muslim like he would be the riding animal, right? And then you fast forward to the end of his life and he worries and he loses sleep over a donkey in a few countries over in Iraq that maybe the roads have not been paved and the donkey trips and Allah's going to ask me, why were you negligent about the welfare of the people and their animals? Like the, the transformative nature of embracing this deed wholeheartedly and sincerely. And, you know, what I want to say here is that so many people, including Muslims, hold themselves back by projecting their own negative image about themselves, their negative self-image on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What do I mean? Can I actually be forgiven? I'm not sure I can be forgiven. Right? Many people like sort of dabble with these thoughts. Where does that thought even come from? It comes from you. You feel like you are so pathetic that you are not worthy of being forgiven. But does that come from Allah? It doesn't come from Allah because Allah made it very clear that he can and would forgive anything. So it's your image of yourself, what you think Allah will not do because of how negatively you see yourself. Islam comes to shatter all of this. You know the story of the man, for example, who killed a hundred people, right? Can I be forgiven? <laughs> you know, at the end of the story, this man is told, set out on this journey to this land of reform, and he dies midway. What happens when he dies midway? Answer. The angels are arguing and they said, okay, let's measure which of the two lands he's closer to. And then what happened? Essentially, Allah Azza wa Jal caused the earth to shift so that he would be found closer to the land of reform. And so he would be associated with the land of mercy or he would be identified by the, those people. Think about that. That means what? That means he was closer to the other land. The, the fact that the earth had to be shifted, had to change 
to get him in the other category means he didn't deserve it. Right. Allah is not forgiving you because you deserve it. He's forgiving you because that's what he loves to do. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's because of who he is, not who you are. Does that make sense? Never forget that. You are always redeemable because your Lord is Allah. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. You are always appreciated because your Lord is Allah. Azza wa Jal. It's not because our deeds are so great that Allah is going to appreciate us. No. It's not that our, our, our sins are so little so Allah is going to forgive us. No. Because He is Allah, the most appreciating, the most forgiving. Even Ibn Ata famously, Rahimahullah, one of the great early scholars, he used to say, إِنَّ مِنْ عَلَامَةِ الْإِعْتِمَادِ عَلَى الْعَمَلِ الْإِيَاسُ عِنْدَ الزَّلَلِ One of the signs that you rely too much on your deeds, your performance, right? Is that you lose hope when you slip, when you slip up, when you mess up. When you mess up, don't lose hope because it's not about your deeds to begin with. You got to keep trying. Do the deed as best you can. But it's from Allah and about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala azza wa jal. Umar reminds us that your past does not have to define your future. That's the whole idea. Allah can and will redeem you. And you can be the most loved person on earth by Allah. Even if in this moment, none of you are. But even in this moment, you are the most detested person on earth by Allah. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you think also, not just did Allah redeem him, like just give him a clean slate and start him at zero. Or Umar became the second best. Or Umar became number two in the whole ummah. How did he become number two? He started very late. He missed the hardest years, the years of persecution and so on and so forth. Or Umar became Muslim five to six years into Islam, didn't he? And yet he outraced even the Sahaba. Even the Sahaba, he outraced every last one of them and outclimbed every last one of them except for Abu Bakr. Your past does not define your future, no matter how ugly and how long that ugly past was. You know, there's a story that some of the scholars mention about Banu Israel that they were about to die in one period because of drought. And they kept making dua to Allah to give them rain. He would not give them rain. And ultimately, he revealed to Musa alayhi salam uh, that there is amongst you a man who has been confronting me, vulgar, shameless person, confronting me, challenging me with defiant deeds, sins for the last 40 years straight. So long as he is amongst you, I'm not giving you rain. So Musa salam makes this announcement that whoever you are, leave us. At least don't be a murderer of your entire people. You're going to be responsible for all of us dying. Whatever you've done, it's not worse than what you're about to cause. Just leave us so Allah can give us rain. And then days later or the next day, Allah Azza gave them rainfall. And nobody had left. And so he says, Ya Allah, nobody left, but you gave us rain. He said, this servant of mine sought my forgiveness. He sincerely repented, sincerely asked for my forgiveness. So I forgave him. Just like that. So he said to him, Ya Allah, show me this righteous servant of yours. This person who's like a, a baby now. You gave him a new beginning. You erased it all. Let, let me meet him. He's like a celebrity in the heavens. So we should honor him as well. Show me him. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, I didn't expose him with 40 years of sin. Am I going to expose him now after he's been forgiven for his sins? 
That would be embarrassing for him. That would be humiliating of him. I'm not going to let anyone use his past against him because that's a possibility, right? Just like that, a person can become the best of the best. And a person, Allah can become so protective of such a person and that could be you. Whenever you have this self-doubt, remember Umar. The third lesson I like to think about with Umar, may Allah be pleased with him, is that we as Muslims, we as a community, we as an ummah, we will never rise again in deen, collectively speaking, until we rise in dunya first. That sounds crazy. That sounds blasphemous. I know, I know. Sounds like I'm saying that dunya is more important than deen, right? It's not what I'm saying. But we also have to respect the mechanics of this world, how this world functions, right? You know, when Ibn Mas'ud and others, they said, we only became dignified and were able to publicly share Islam or publicly practice Islam when Umar became Muslim. What does that mean? They said we were never able to pray in broad daylight at the Kaaba until the day Umar became Muslim. Umar becoming Muslim is an increase in dunya or in deen? It's in dunya. At least in the beginning, right? It was dunya. It was biceps. That's what it was. It was muscle. It was physical, worldly muscle. And so the deen is, necess is necessarily interlinked with the dunya. We need strength, the worldly strength, to amass it for the sake of protecting and promoting the deen. Does that make sense? Is it clear? Yes, of course. If we lose our deen as we're building out our dunya, it will be pointless. And we see examples of this. There are many Muslims at the joints of society in different places in the world. There are many Muslims that have reached high places but lost their deen in the process. Obviously, they're not benefiting themselves, let alone others in any way. But look at the examples of the Muslims, the highlight here and there, that have retained their deen. They were only a good example or a sort of a torchbearer or a caller of attention to the greatness of this deen because they were successful in what? In dunya. Like, look at the, the wrestler. Look at Khabib, right? I believe UFC is haram. Okay, let's just put that on the table here. Smashing people's faces, haram. Uncovering your auras, haram. Pretty straightforward. But why couldn't the Muslims and the non-Muslims heal their eyes away from his historic run? Even those of us who believed it was haram were still keeping tabs. Why? Because he was successful. Right? Yeah, because Khabib was undefeated. Khabib was 29-0. Even I know that. Right? Let me ask you a question. If he was 1 and 28, he won 1 and lost 28, would we care? Would we turn his quotes into memes? Would we follow this, that, and the third? and say <laughs> We wouldn't. Why? Because we're gravitating towards strength. He would be irrelevant. Maybe a more recent example is the Moroccan national team in the World Cup. I have no care for soccer. Okay? I'm a basketball guy. But why were we so inspired and dignified and by the Moroccan national team. Is it because they were Muslim? Absolutely not. And I can prove it. There were many other Muslim teams in the World Cup. 
it was because they were Final Four. That is why. Now we want to say, look at them and how they treat their moms, mashallah. Look at them and leveraging their fame for the, the Palestinian. I'm not making fun. Like, these are beautiful things they're doing. But nobody would be paying attention. Nobody cares. Right? Until you are strong on the ground. Right? That's what matters. I remember the, I always remember the, the owner of the, the Greek yogurt company, Chobani, right? Hamdi Ulikai, I think is how you pronounce his name. This man, you guys have Chobani in Australia? Good. Buy it. <laughs> Even if it's a little more expensive, buy it. Uh, this man made big news a few years back, for those that recall. And the reason was that he promised or gave, I don't recall, 10% uh, of his company to his factory workers. 10% of the shares of the company went towards his laborers. And he said, I couldn't have made it without you guys. And so on top of their salary, you guys deserve at least this much. And the world sort of like paid a whole lot of attention. Let me just say something. He gave up 10% of his company. I have given up, I, Prama Chinawi, have given up 50% of my entire wealth. And nobody ever talked about me. Because I had $2 once. And I gave a dollar in Sadaqah. Why is nobody talking about me? Because nobody cares about a dollar. I mean, it may be greater in the sight of Allah, only Allah knows. I'm talking about the mechanics of dunya, right? The, the richer you get, the stingier you get. The more money you collect, the stickier it becomes. That's the way it works. And yet to be able to pull that off, that's impressive. And so Umar radiallahu an reminds us and represents for us uh, the importance of being serious about acquiring worldly strength and how that is to be leveraged for the sake of deen. You know, when they asked one of the scholars what happened to this ummah, he said, we had the dunya in our hands, but it wasn't in our hearts. But then it got into our hearts, so Allah pulled it from our hands. But the idea is you need it in your hands, but you also need to keep it out of your heart. We, we have to remember this. It was the numbers. It was the strength. It was the personalities that Allah guided to Islam through which Islam sort of took off and started growing exponentially and establishing and stabilizing in unique ways. And you know, a subset of this point about worldly strength, Umar radiallahu anhi used to say to the people after he became the Khalifa, إِنِّي لَأَكْرَهُ أَنْ أَرَى الرَّجُلَ سَبَهْلَلَ I cannot stand to see a man wandering aimlessly. Neither preoccupied with the work of this world, nor the work of the hereafter. Just like, you know, life to them is, is, is a game. Get to work. Do something about it, right? And it's interesting that Umar used to say this. Why? Because Umar... Was, was, was catching it early and recognizing with his visionary nature the ills of prosperity that creep up on everyone once they prosper, right? You ever heard that saying that uh, hard times create strong people and strong people create good times then good times create weak people and then weak people create hard times. You ever heard that? And then hard times create the cycle of civilizations, right? And so when you're in good times, O oh Westerners, 
when you are in sort of the first world, all Muslims in front of me, you need to know that the ease of your life will make life so hard on you. And you need to snap out of it and sort of resist the herd effect and get to work in the amal of the dunya and the amal of the akhirah. You can't become complacent. Umar used to threaten the Muslims that if you start getting docile, getting satisfied, stop pursuing the akhirah, I will drive you out of your homes. I will burn down your farms. And you're all about estates and sort of like, you know, all of it is capital gains and all this. If you want to use modern, you know, he would tell them, what are you doing? What are, what have, are you contributing? For what purpose do you live? And he used to say to Abu Zawaid, ما يمنعك من الزواج إلا عجز أو فجور Why aren't you married yet? You're not married for one of two reasons. Either you're incompetent, like you have a physical inability, or fujur, or you're wicked. You want to just play around. There's no excuse. What are you here for? I just want to live life and then I'll get married later. Why? What do you mean live life? Like we have a whole Jannah waiting for us. That's what he's telling them. Hurry up, prepare yourself, man up, get married, build a family, increase the ummah, raise righteous people. He would constantly press people about being serious and being strong and sort of having a plan. The fourth lesson that I wanted to share with you quickly in the interest of time is that Umar, of course, symbolizes for history <laughs> that the, the very Islamic, the very prophetic principle that strong people are those that are able to discipline themselves, right? Not just discipline others. Strong people are those that are able to regulate themselves, are able to leverage that strength against themselves first, right? Self-development, self-restraint, self-refinement, self-discipline. And this is, this is a prophetic principle. Why? Because the Prophet ﷺ said it. Didn't he say, The strong person is not the person who can out-wrestle others. You got to make yourself tap out, not just others. And I don't mean that in sort of the, the nihilistic sense. But he used to say, But the truly strong person is the one that is able to restrain themselves. And he gave the example of anger. When anger arises. And you know, that, that also reminds you of the fact that strength isn't an inherent virtue unless you use it for the sake of Allah, Right? Like, is strength a good thing or a bad thing? It depends. Is it carry you to good ends or bad ends, right? If strength causes you to abuse others, is that a good thing? It's a horrible thing. You will wish you had no strength. You will wish on the Day of Judgment you were the victim and not the oppressor. Right or wrong? So strength, patience, resilience, determination, all of these, it's about what you use them for. And so to use them for your own improvement, improving your profile in front of the Lord of the Worlds, that's what really validates a person's strength. And, you know, there's so, like Omar was not the only strong person in Quraysh, by the way, right? But he was the one that was able to sort of overcome his bigotry to become Muslim, right? That's why he's our hero. The others were forgotten. They got washed away in the trash can of history because they could not overcome themselves, out-wrestle their egos. They couldn't do it. You know, when Umar was Khalifa, I'll give you a few incidents that do come to mind here. When Umar was Khalifa, they faced a lot of troubles at the hands of the Sassanid Persian Empire. 
This is the superpower of the time. They had done so much. And Umar ultimately put an end to the tyrannical regime. But this was hard work. And one of the masterminds, the head shayateen, head shaytans of the Persian Empire was a man, a commander, and a strategist by the name of Al-Hurmuzan. They used to tell him, if you, if you can capture Al-Hurmuzan, you'll be sparing the lives of the two armies. Just get this guy out of the equation. He's the chess master. He was just like a genius in a devilish sort of way. So when Umar finally captured him, uh, <laughs> long story short, he said to him, your religion tells you to not torture the prisoner and so on and so forth. And, you know, here I am dying of thirst. How am I even going to sort of disclose the information, even if I wanted to, what you're questioning me about when I'm so thirsty? And so Umar says, give him water. So he gives him water and Al-Hurmuzan goes like this. He starts shaking the water on his way to his mouth. He's acting like he's afraid. Mastermind. Uh, so he's acting like he's, he's afraid. He said to him, why are you shaking? He said, I don't know. I don't know what you're going to do to me. Like, what if you're going to, am I even going to be allowed to drink this? Or are you going to kill me uh, before I even drink it? So he says, so no, I wouldn't do that. He said, you promise you will not kill me until I drink this? He said, I promise. So he spills it in the floor. <laughs> Genius. Genius. He, now, now you can't kill me because I, you said I have to drink it first. I'm safe until I drink it. Well, I'm not drinking it. And Umar kept to his word, right? You can imagine any one of us, myself included, we'd probably snap at that point, right? Uh, or I'll give you another example. Um, and there's so many, so many, but it's really something to appreciate. Umar used to be extremely tough on his governors, on the Muslim governors, that this is a, a responsibility, not a privilege. You should be using it for the sake of the greater good, not for sort of personal interests. And he would keep tabs on all of his governors. He would like do surprise visits uh, to check on them, what kind of you know life they were living, what kind of house were they furnishing, what kind of food were they eating. So he shows up in Al-Jabiya one day, which was being governed at the time by Abu Ubaid ibn al-Jarrah. Abu Ubaid, you know, is one of the ten promised Jannah, one of the ten companions prophet, promised Jannah, radiallahu an. And he says, Amir al-Mu'mineen, welcome. It's so nice to see you. It's been too long. And, you know, they're comrades, brothers, forever. He says, take me to your house. He says, oh, of course, I'd love to have you in my house. He takes him to his house. Umar has an agenda. He had heard reports that he believed were trustworthy about the wife of Abu Ubaidah, that she was sort of like a materialistic, a little bit of a shopaholic, like pressuring her husband to, to you know, to, you know, you know, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, of, a little bit more. You're the governor, right? So he wanted to go inspect the man's house. So he takes him home. They sit down. House looks pretty simple. But that wasn't enough for Omar. Omar believed that sort of the, the intelligence reports were, were legit. So he had to press her a little bit. So when she came out, he said to her, you're so-and-so. She said, yes. I'm going to make you sorry. You're going to be sorry. So she said, Wallahi, uh, you will not be able to. So Umar says, you will be sorry for what, you, for what you're doing. She said, Wallahi, you will not be able to make me sorry. And then her husband jumps in and says, no, he can't. He really <laughs> because, you know, like Umar, if Umar couldn't, who could? And Umar could before he was Khalifa. 
Now he's Mr. President, so like. He said, no, no, he can. And then she slaps back, basically, and she says, figurative, slaps back. And she says, هَلْ يَقْدِرُ أَنْ يَنْزِعَ عَنِّيَ الْإِسْلَامَ فَيَذْهَبُ بِهِ Can he strip me of my Islam and toss it away? So her husband said, no. So she said, then I don't care what he does after that. I'll never be sorry. I can never be disgraced so long as I have my Islam. So Umar realized that this is not the woman I thought I was sort of going need to, needing to investigate. This is a this is a righteous woman, uh, and so he he sought forgiveness and he left. He didn't get all egotistical, didn't get all defensive. You know when you decide on anger and you just can't turn it off because you've decided. <laughs> Umar didn't do that. And this is Umar, right? The one that is known for his assertiveness and known for his strength. And, uh, and known for his forcefulness and his power. Uh, and so each and every one of us needs to think deeply about how well we level our strength against ourselves and harness it and channel it for the sake of Allah Azza wa Jal. You know, there's actually a hadith, the hadith of Ka'b ibn Ujra. It's a beautiful hadith, not very well known actually, but an authentic hadith inshallah, wherein there was a muscular sahabi. It says that, the Rajul Jal, like a tough built, well-built man walking in front of some of the Sahaba and they said لَوْ كَانَ هَذَا فِي سَبِيلِ because I need to widen for you what I mean by seeking the pleasure of Allah, right? If only this was invested, employed in the path of Allah all this was used they meant out in the battlefields like we wish he, if only he would go out more, right? And so the Prophet ﷺ commented on this and he said, if he is heading to serve two elderly parents, then it is in the path of Allah. And if he is heading, he's like walking past them, and if he is heading, striving to earn a decent living, as we say nowadays, to earn for his young children, then it is in the path of Allah. And he is striving to earn to keep himself chaste, I mean, to make a living, to be able to get married so that he doesn't fall into fornicate, then that is in the path of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when we say in, in the path of Allah and his pleasure, we don't just mean da'wah orientation, though that's a, the job of every Muslim according to their various capacities, right? We should all be ambassadors for this great deen. And maybe I'll end with that in a second. But everything that aligns us with what Allah expects of us and it will be pleased with from us all of that is in the path of Allah harness your talents your strength your time your energy in that that is when you are a blessed human being that is when your life is a fruitful life that is when you have a legacy in the heavens because sometimes we romanticize a little bit the idea of legacies and things like this and of course all that you hear is true but let us not forget that there could be greater duties that are more rewardable and easy, not just easier, more emphasized in earning us the love of Allah than the other stuff that maybe one in a million out of us will be chosen for by Allah Azza wa Jal, subhanahu wa ta'ala. The, the fifth and final lesson I wanted to just, you know, hover over quickly from the life of Umar ibn al-Khattab, radiallahu an. It's a hack. It's a life hack. Better than any life hack you've ever heard, okay? It's the ultimate cheat code. Are you ready for it? 
if you can't be Umar, then be Abu Bakr. What do I mean by this? Abu Bakr is the guy who brought Umar to Islam. Right or wrong? So every virtue of Umar is actually a virtue of Abu Bakr. It's in his scales. Right? You know, I was in Virginia uh, with a cousin of mine. And I forget what was the day, uh, Ramadan or not, but he wasn't fasting. Maybe he was sick or maybe it was a voluntary day. The point is, I was fasting, he wasn't. So we went out to dinner. It just landed at Maghrib time. So it was one of those places where you pay ahead and you just sort of eat uh, at a buffet or something. So as soon as I get in, he he beats me to it. Uh, and he's Palestinian, I'm not, so he's extra aggressive. Any Palestinians in here? I'm so sorry. I was just joking. I swear to God. My sister's married to a Palestinian as well. I'm going to get myself killed before this lecture is over. But yeah, like he out-wrestled me and he paid. He swiped, right? And then he turned to me and he said to me, I fast the smart way. Meaning by paying for your iftar without having to fast myself, I got the reward of fasting, right? So that is the hack because that is the generosity of Allah Azza wa Jal subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Abu Bakr didn't just, didn't just bring Umar to Islam he kept raising the bar on Umar by modeling for him Islam. Right? You know the story of the charity and then sort of like Umar found himself not able to compete with Abu Bakr. He said, I'll never compete with you again because he brought half of his money and then found that Abu Bakr had brought all of his money. May Allah be pleased with them all. Or another incident when Abu Bakr was the Khalifa, Umar used to notice that he used to sneak out of the masjid very early, immediately after Salah. And this was like a little bit mysterious because this is not the sunnah. The sunnah is to remain until sunrise. Uh, unless, you know, there, there's a reason, a legit reason not to be staying around. And so it intrigued Umar. Umar started following him. Spying after him. Not technically spying, but he was probing, figuring out what's happening. And he found Abu Bakr Sadiq entering at a house on, at the outskirts of Medina. And... After he left, Umar went in. He found this elderly woman. Perhaps she was blind. I don't recall. And he said to her, who are you? And who is this man? This foreign man who enters your house every day. She said, I'm, I am what you see. Sort of like a, a lone, elderly, dependent woman. And this man that enters every single day, I have no idea who he is. He comes every morning and he cleans our house and he bakes our bread and he keeps it moving. And so Umar wept. And he said, you have really complicated things for anybody after you, Abu Bakr. You've set the standard so high. You know, there's actually a very similar incident in the biography of Umar bin Khattab, radiallahu uh, narrated by Din Nawari in his book, Al-Majalis, from Zayd ibn Aslam. Zayd ibn Aslam says, one time we went out with Umar, he was patrolling at night the streets, and he, he heard children crying, crying hysterically. And so when he, he went towards the sound, he found a woman and her children around her feet crying. And she's sort of like stirring a kettle. And he said to her, why are these kids crying? She's saying they're crying from hunger. They're so hungry. He said, and what are you cooking for them? He, she said, nothing. I'm just stirring water in a pot to make them think the food is on its way until they fall asleep. And between me and Umar is Allah. Meaning, my dispute with Umar, Allah will settle it and get my vengeance against Umar ibn al-Khattab. He's Umar, she doesn't know. So he said to her, and how can Umar even know 
what you're going through. She said, then that's a bigger problem. How can he expect, accept to be our leader and be oblivious to our needs? And so Umar grabbed Zayd bin Aslam and they took off. And he went into the Muslim treasury and he grabbed the sack and he filled it with like flour and like ghee shortening and he grabbed clothing and he grabbed everything he could grab from the charities of the Muslims. And he carried it on his back and he headed back to her in the middle of the night. And Zayd ibn Aslam the whole time is begging him, let me carry it, let me carry it, Amir al-Mu'mineen. He said, I carry this responsibility, so I must carry this load. I can't carry this in, Yawm al-Qiyamah, let me carry this bag. And so he brings it to her and he sets it down and he starts rekindling the fire. And he's getting under the fire and Zayd ibn Aslam is telling him, please stop. And Umar is blowing and blowing, you know, to, to start the flame. And until the, the smoke starts, you know, uh, thickening. And Zayd ibn Aslam says, I can see the smoke even passing through his beard. His head was in, you know, under the kettle. Uh, until he started the fire and cooked for them and all of the kids played. But Umar refused to get up until he told the kids to get on his back and play on his back, play horse, essentially. And he said to him, this is too much, Amir al-Muminin. This is too much. Why all of this? He said, I made them cry, so I also have to make them laugh. I didn't just make them hungry. I made them hungry and they cried. So I have to feed them and make them laugh. May Allah be pleased with Umar. Say Amin. And so the woman, uh, the woman says to him, uh, Wallahi, you deserve to be Amir al-Mu'mineen, not Umar. And he says, you know, he told her, just say good things. Like, just stick to saying good things. Uh, and so, so that was Umar al-Khattab, radiallahu an, the product of Abu Bakr Siddiq. Right? You see the parallel. This is all in Abu Bakr's scales. And so we just need to remember that Allah is so great. And Allah is so generous. And you can be responsible for the next Umar. Assist somebody, give them their shahada, raise somebody, give birth to somebody. <laughs> you don't know. You don't know what it could be. And Imam Ahmed was dead in the water because he was an orphan and his mother used to just go out of her way to get him dressed early to get a seat in the Hadith Halaqas in Baghdad. And he became Imam Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. You know, Sufyan al-Thawri rahimahullah was an orphan and his mother said to him, you seek this sacred knowledge and I will use my spindle to weave fabrics, textiles, and sell them to fund you. Don't busy yourself with this thing. You have a worthier mission in the world. I'll share with you, you know, one final story. The story of Al-Qarawani, rahimahullah, you should read about him. When the, uh, the Mughal Empire in the late 1800s was collapsing, the Christian missionaries were taking the Muslim world and the subcontinent by storm. And no one knew what to do. And no one really could do anything during that landslide, that avalanche. And so, Rahmatullah al-Qairawani, rahimahullah, was an Indian scholar who wrote a book called Idhar al-Haqq. Idhar al-Haqq, making the truth clear. It was basically a, a plug-and-play manual on how to sort of decimate all of the arguments of Christian missionaries, all their top arguments. And he died, rahimahullah, and he couldn't get the book out. But he tried his best. He just tried, right? And the book was lost. The book resurfaced in South Africa. 
and not a full copy, but a half-eaten-by-moths copy. In the hands of not a scholar, but a tailor, a child that worked as a tailor, that child's name was Ahmad Didat, rahimahullah. And he became the greatest, right? Uh, deconstructionist, debater, uh, force, intellectual force against Christian missionary work in the whole 20th century. And then out of him came so many projects, right? Like, it's enough that Zakir Naik is one of his projects, right? The famous Dr. Zakir Naik and Peace TV and the Peace Conferences and all of this will work in IRF, Islamic Research Federate Foundation. And because of one man who tried his best in the darkness of the 1800s, right? And so put your trust in Allah and his generosity. You may not think that you can be Umar, but you can be responsible for the next Umar. You can be Abu Bakr himself, the Abu Bakr of our generation. The Prophet said, Fi kulli qarnin sabiqun. In every century, there will be forerunners. May he write for us and you a place among them. Allahumma ameen. And use us for his deen and not replace us. Allahumma ameen. And teach us and show us how to begin with those closest to home, our families and communities. Allahumma ameen. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Jazakallah khayn everybody.